Good morning, church. It's great to see you. You're a gift to us as we gather here today. It's always a gift to me personally to worship and be with the family at Front Street. And so thank you for your presence. As I told during announcements, I'm always humbled when somebody shows up. So thank you so very much. For those you haven't met, Josh. Josh Abraham's the newest member of our team here at Front Street. And he helps with worship and with uh, predominantly contemporary worship in Aldersgate and helping Chris and youth ministry. And so thank you, Josh, for helping us in worship today. Well, I hope you've had a good week and I hope um, you are still basking in the Easter season. Um, Have you ever had something that was simply too good to be true? And then maybe you learned indeed it was too good to be true. You ever had that happen? Yeah. Um, I can remember, I, because my dad had a landscaping company, uh, I always got to drive a truck. But I had it in my senior year that I wanted a sports car. You know. Charming, debonair, and a sports car. You know. I wanted all of that. Or at least the sports car. And anyway, so I... I wore my dad down and asked him, Dad, just please, I, I just want, and so I found one. It was a Fiat X19. Now, you auto connoisseurs know that that is just one step up above a go-kart, <laughs> but tons more trouble. I, I got the car, and I was so excited, and I'll never forget, uh, I decided I, w- I would, a friend of mine, who had been a friend of mine a long time, but um, she was really cute, and I thought if I took her to the beach, maybe she would think the same of me. She never did, but anyway, I took her to the beach, and, and Fiat X19s, their trunks are in the front. I don't know what you call them. What do you call a trunk that's in the front? I don't know, but anyway. Um, and, and so um, we're on our way to the beach. We lived about 20 minutes from the beach, and so we got there, and I'd had the car about a month, but this hadn't happened before. It started overheating. And I stopped and I got some water in it and got back in the car and took off again. And about five minutes, it overheated again. And then before we got to the beach, it did it again. I was so embarrassed. Do you know that desire, that thing? Because I got this car. It was a great price. I kept telling him, Dad, this is a great price for this car. And so he gave in and I got the car. And guess what? It was too good to be true. It wasn't worth what I gave for it. It ended up, it got stuck in my driveway, and I barely got into my driveway, and this is about six months after the trip to the beach, and it wouldn't go anymore. It threw a rod through the engine. It cracked the engine. It wasn't worth what I gave for. It was too good to be true. It was a good deal, I thought, but it was way too good to be true. Any of you had any experiences like that? It was just too good to be true. You don't have to answer because you might be embarrassed. You might have bought a Fiat X192, and it just isn't what it's cracked up to be. I'm sure Fiat's are better now. I don't know. Do they still make Fiat's? I don't know that either. But you know, in the fall of 1985, I had another, it's too good to be true. I went in, I had moved, uh, my roommate and I, a roommate um, from college had both decided to go to Duke, and we came up here and, and uh, got a two-bedroom townhouse together in Durham, and um, 
I went to pay my rent like in September. We moved there uh, like in the end of July and I was paying my rent and I went in there and there was a new face there. She wasn't there when I rented the apartment or went and paid my rent before. Some of you remember the days when you had to take your check, you had to write a check and then you had to take your check. You, anybody remember checks? I mean, anyway, and so that's what I would do, take it in there. And there was this lovely young lady there behind the desk. And uh, I said, hi, I'm Ray, I'm here to pay my rent. She said, that's good, you just put it right here and I'll take care of it. And I said, you haven't been here before, have you? No, I'm new, I've just started. I thought, oh, okay. Are you new to the area? No, I'm born and raised here, that's great. And uh, I ch- ch- told her I was new to Durham, I didn't know Durham. And on that first day that I met her, I was so taken aback that I asked her out. Can you believe that? And you know what she said? No. (laughs) She said no. And so I said, oh, okay, all right. And so the next month rolls around. It's November. I go in there. There she sat, that beautiful brunette with blue eyes. I'm like... Um, you know, I'm Ray, I don't remember, but hey, you know, if you, I would love to take you out sometime. And I was so excited. I just knew, you know, two times. And uh, she looked at me, she said, no, I, that's okay. Thank you, though. No. Told me no. December rolls around. I take my check in there once again. And she's still there. And I chit-chatted a bit, and I said, now listen, I'd love to take you out. It's December, Christmas, the Christmas spirit and all that, you know. And she didn't have much Christmas spirit, and she told me no. I don't think it was funny. I'm glad you do. <laughs> but anyway, so when she told me no, I said, you know, I said, when, some, when I ask someone out and they tell me no, I never ask them out again because I'm kind of embarrassed. I don't want to. And I've asked you out three times. I said, so I've kind of struck out. But in case you ever want to go out, you know my number, and I'd love to hear from you. But I'm going away on Christmas vacation, going to Florida, be with my family, my brother, sister, and all of that, and I'll be back in early January. She said, thank you very much. She is so sweet about it. So I thought that was it. I'd just see her when I pay my check. But we got, I got back from Christmas break, and... Um, I'd been at home one day in January, and my phone rings. Hi, Ray. Hey, hope you had a good Christmas break. Yeah, I did. Thanks. And we chit-chatted this girl that I had asked out three times, and she said, hey, would you like to go out? <laughs> now, I know some of you find that hard to believe, but back in the day, back in those days, I had hair and was skinny. And so, you know, it was amazing. But I still couldn't believe she said, you want to go out? So to this day, I still tell everybody, she asked me out. (laughs) Well, she did. It's just too good to be true. I just couldn't believe it. I just simply couldn't believe it. A few weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. And to be honest with you, sometimes I can't believe it. Not the whole thing of Easter. Somebody raised from the dead, Jesus Christ raised from the dead, the resurrected body, not resuscitated, mind you, not like somebody gave him heart palpitations or whatever you do or had that thing that jolts you alive. No, no, he, and he, he wasn't a ghost. I mean, he raised from the dead. The 20, 
fourth chapter of Luke or read the story. Then we hear the two women that go to the tomb and the tomb is empty and the bedclothes are the bedclothes, the, the linen are there and all folded up and two men are there in dazzling white and they said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus, our Lord. They said, well, he's not here. They went back to the leaven and told them the stories and the Bible says the words seemed to them like nonsense that the women told them, like nonsense. The very next passage in Luke's gospel tells the story of two people who met the risen Christ unbeknownst to them on their way home to Emmaus. They carried on a conversation with him along the road. They didn't, I mean, it is, it's just too good to be true. I just can't believe it. And then while these two people, they invited him into their home to eat, which was a, almost a sacrament of hospitality in the ancient times, and Jesus came in. They still don't know it's Jesus. And he, then when he took the bread and he broke it, they recognized it as the rabbi, the teacher, their Lord. And as he broke it, and as soon as they realized who it was, he disappeared in front of them. And then it says immediately, these two people who've been walking the road to Emmaus, they run back to Jerusalem. And they told the 11 what had happened their experience with the risen Christ, eating with them around the table there. And it's this point in the chapter where we come to the scripture lesson that Josh read for us today. And I really had fun looking at this passage. I actually read this passage differently than I'd read it before. And I, I, I saw a new insight. Uh, it will not be new to you because you're a lot smarter than I am. And certainly the pastors that have come through here are much more brilliant than me. But for me, it was new. Because I'll be honest with you, when I've read this passage, and I've read this whole chapter 24 of all the appearings of Jesus, and then it, I'm thinking the disciples still don't get it. They still can't believe it. I'm thinking, how thick-headed can you be? He shows up, walks through walls. He's not in the tomb. What else? And he's done miracles before he died. What else do these thick-headed knuckleheads need to know who Jesus is? So as I was reading this passage, that's what I was thinking. How can they be so hard-headed? How could they not see? I think the disciples had more going on than thick-headedness. I think there's something more going on. I, I think they were having an experience similar to the one I had in, in 1980, well, 1986 of January when she said, yes, I couldn't believe it. And then in 1987, as I stood at an altar very much like this church down front, and that girl who told me, no, 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 I'd been dating a year and was now going to say, yes, I do. I couldn't believe it. I was smiling like Cheshire Cat. I couldn't believe she was walking down the aisle toward me to marry me. I mean, would you what have? Don't answer that. I know you wouldn't have. And I'm like, wow, this can't be happening. I think the disciples, the apostles are having one of those moments. I think they were overwhelmed by something so wonderful, so incredible, so beyond comprehension that they literally could not believe it. It was simply too good to be true. Luke describes it this way. They're not believing. In verse 41, he says, and while they still did not believe it because of, get this, 
because of their joy and amazement. They couldn't believe it because their joy and amazement. They, 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 they just couldn't get it. I've decided to call this joy and amazement something. I'm calling it too good to be true syndrome. The disciples were experiencing, if you will, the too good to be true syndrome. I, 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 you can write that down. You, I, you can title it. Ray Warren said this, too good to be true syndrome. But notice that I did not say they were suffering from too good to be true syndrome. I said they were experiencing too good to be true syndrome. They were experiencing an event, an occurrence, a pouring out of God's grace in their lives that was so amazing and caused them so much joy that it was simply too good to be true. In other words, their disbelief is not based on doubt, but is based on the reality of something so fantastic, so otherworldly, that it simply they simply can't comprehend it. I have a hard time comprehending it to this day. I remind you, I think part of the reason Jesus appearing and eating and having them touch his hands and look at his feet is because he wanted them to understand this was resurrection, not resuscitation. This is not ghost figure. This is bodily raising from the dead. It's too good to be true. Again, that's what happened to me in the summer of, or the spring of 87, Jill walking down that aisle. But that's not the only time it's happened to me. I've also experienced too good to be true times when I held my boys as newborns when they were brought into this world and, and, and I counted their fingers and toes and listened to them scream and holler and it was just too unbelievable. I mean, I know the birthing process, but just too unbelievable to be true. I've had the experience, too, where living in a household that was torn up by, by, by drinking and smoking and all kinds of stuff with my dad, and then all of a sudden in 1972, the pages are ripped and torn, and our lives are different. I mean, it was just otherworldly. It took me a while as a little 10-year-old kid to get that in my head, that the world was different for us. I imagine the joys and disbelief the young shepherd David and his father Jesse experienced when the Samuel prophet anointed him, David, the lowest rung on the, on, on the rung of social society of, of a shepherd boy, naming him and proclaiming him king of Israel. Or think of the incredible amazement that Peter must have experienced when he crossed the water on top of the water walking with Jesus. Or about Moses and the Hebrew people walking across dry land that had been a seabed. Or the young girl Jesus raised from the dead in the 8th chapter of Luke when Jesus told the people who were wailing and mourning her death that she's not dead, she's asleep. And they laughed at him. But Jesus gets the last laugh and she ra he raises her from the dead and her parents were astonished. I bet they were. It was otherworldly. I could stand here for another 30 minutes going through the biblical text of the otherworldly, unfathomable, too good to be true things that have happened in Scripture. But these experiences are not limited to the Bible or to me. You see, God is the same powerful love, giving, grace, bestowing God today that he was in the ancient days. You've heard a couple of my stories more than you want to hear. But I bet you have some. Too good to be true, but they ended up being real and true. Maybe it's when your spouse walked down the aisle. Maybe it's when the doctor turned and said, we don't see the tumor anymore, or you're in remission. 
Or maybe it was that relationship you thought was forever broken that was healed in a way that you could manipulate or work out. God just healed it. Maybe it's you've been free for your addiction as you can get from addiction and you still can't believe that you're sober. Perhaps it was your conversion experience like my dad's that was just so profound that it changed the world around him. And what I want you to understand is this, that's kind of the point. It's too good to be true, but it really is true. The unfathomable, amazing grace of God that shows up in miraculous ways in the ordinary days of our lives. And it's as we claim those too good to be true experience of God, that God's grace in our lives that gives us the empowerment to be able to proclaim and tell people about our experiences. You know, we get all wigged out, freaked out when we talk about we should testify. We tell people about our experience. We say, well, I can't do that. I don't know people. I don't think God wants you necessarily to go out and talk to strangers, but I think God in normal conversations wants to be in us so that we can share just some of what God's done in your life. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to be uh, trying to recruit them. You don't have to try to convince them. You don't have to convince people about something that's happened in your life. So for the next moment, uh, we're going to do something a little weird. All right? Is that okay? Is it, if it's, is it okay to do a little weird? I mean, because listen, you're already weird. You're a bunch of people sitting in church worshiping a God that you can't see that we say rose from the dead, and he had a ragtag group of guys that, and gals that probably should have been someplace else saying the same thing. So you're already a bunch of weird people, you know. I'm just saying, just saying. So let's do something. Because I don't know about you, but this God is just too good to be true. So I want you to, to, to do something. Turn to somebody near you and say, God's been good to me. Will you tell them that right now? God's been good to me. Okay, I didn't say get in conversation, just one little sentence. Anyway, so, so the next thing, I, I, one more thing, one more thing, if you will, is turn to another neighbor and say, God loves you unbelievably. Turn to them, tell them. Oh, Lord, you're making me nervous. A couple of you got up and stood. I thought, oh, no. You know, have you ever thought about when someone dies and the things we do when someone dies? One of the first things we do after we make a phone call, make a visit, call the funeral home, or whatever we're doing, we, we leftover people who are still walking and breathing on planet Earth, we so often want to take food. Have you ever noticed that? I've had a couple of you during just the 10 months I've been here say, Ray, please tell them not to bring any food, more food. We got more. It's running over. We're having to give it away. Why on earth do we do that? Why, why, do, why do we take food? Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is so somebody at home doesn't have to cook anything. That's a pretty good reason. But I think there's more than that. Have you noticed Jesus? After the resurrection, have you noticed the tables? Have you? I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Emmaus. These two people I mentioned a while ago, inviting him in to the table, and they eat, and they're sharing together, and he breaks the bread, and they know who he is. 
And then there's another time when Jesus, he is on the seaside and his friends are fishing because they don't know what else to do and he calls out to them and then they come in with their fish and did you notice what Jesus is doing in the intimate moment? He is cooking them breakfast. Did you know that Jesus likes sausage, eggs, and fish and he cooks for them? Wow. And then this week in the upper room, he shows up and he says, hey, I'm hungry, guys. You got anything to eat? And they eat. One interpretation is they give him leftovers because they're grieving. They don't know what to do. And have you ever noticed, I've been around a lot of those tables getting ready to celebrate someone's life. And I've been at those tables with my own family. Have you noticed what happens there? It's one of the only places that I know of that we can feel deep grief and laugh our head off because we tell the stories of those we love. I remember distinctly when my dad died, my brother and my sister and friends and family gathered around the table, and I think my sister brought up the time that dad, actually I drove a van home and, and from dad, you know, we're buying, always buying vehicles for, for work for his company, and so I brought a van home, and I don't know why Dad did this, but if he had 10 trucks or 120, I don't know, but he always had to look under the hood, like, is the engine there or something? I don't know. But one day, he looked under the hood, and guess what? The surprise of his life couldn't be real. It was a huge snake was sitting on the engine. And my sister and I, we laughed because Dad just about passed out. Opened that, he yelled and hollered and all of that. We couldn't believe it was happening. And we laughed and laughed, and we cried tears of grief. You see, I think what happens around that table with a resurrected Lord gathered with saints who are grieving loved ones who they have lost, I think in that ta- at that table with that food with friends and family and the crying and the laughing comes healing. One of our folks told me this morning after 8.45, she remembers when her mother died and how heartbroken she was, and how healing it was afterwards, knowing that her mom wasn't going to be here, but life would go on, and she was going to be okay. You see, I think our Lord knew something about the table, and knew something about our psychology, and knew something about our heart, and knew something about food, and family, and friends gathering And then Jesus, after he talks to the disciples and shows them his hands and his feet in this Luke text, he tells them, now you are witnesses of all these things. In appearing to the disciples after his resurrection, Jesus significantly blesses them and trusts them and you and me to be witnesses of the incredible events, the joyous events, the amazing grace that simply cannot be believed with eyes and mind. Jesus doesn't want to just want us to soak it up for ourselves, but want to tell others about your too good to be true experiences. So I want you to do one other thing for me this morning that's not so weird. It may be weird, but it's not as public. There may be a pen or a pencil around you someplace, but I want us just to do our remembering. What have been the too good 
to be true moments in your life. That you know now that God orchestrated, God revealed, God helped you. What are the two good to be true moments for you? You have one? Do you know of one? Can you remember one? Can you be reminded? Some of us, our spouse isn't here, but we had years with him or her. They were a gift, were they not? Some of us have lost children. Were they not a gift to us? Some of us have been unbelievably blessed beyond our doing of financial resources. What a blessing. Some of us have great kids who love Jesus and worship. What gifts. Now, do me one favor as you remember. I want us all to take a deep breath in and hold it. Take a deep breath with me. Hold it. Now release it. The God of all creation, breathe that breath into your life and you are a gift. You're too good to be true. It's just amazing. You're astonishing. You're a gift to those around you and this one in front of you. And more importantly, the Lord who created you said you're a gift. You're a gift. Last thing. Is there a place in your life that needs resurrection? A relationship healed? A prayer life to commence that's never been there? Some sort of healing? Some sort of liberation? So today your homework is to write down somewhere today one or two things that are just too good to be true in your life. And then a place that needs resurrection. And say, Lord, let this become too good to be true. Amen and amen.